So, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the cleansing ceremony before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a half of a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Jesus Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Thanks, Lindsay, for reading. Morning, everybody. I'm Ben, the pastor here. Let me pray as we come to consider that passage in God's word. Father, we thank you. For your word, we thank you for this record of Jesus' life, and we thank you for the presence of your spirits, who caused these words to be written by John all those centuries ago, now present with us to help us understand. And we pray that we would indeed understand, take to heart what you're teaching us in this passage and put it into practice in our lives, that we might live lives that bring great honor and glory to your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, let me take you back uh, to chapter uh, 11, verse 25. It's in the reading that we had last week. Uh, Jesus, at the graveside of one of his closest friends, says, 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus is saying, I am the one who can give life. I am the one who can raise the dead. That is an extraordinary thing to say at a funeral. It would be sick to say that unless you really meant it. But Jesus does mean it. This is not just empty platitude. It's not just a profound statement. Jesus backs it up with a powerful sign. He stands at the tomb of Lazarus and he cries, Lazarus, come out. And we're told that the dead man walked out of the tomb. 
Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus has said some amazing things. He's done some amazing things. But this is the most amazing miracle so far. Jesus can give life to the dead. Jesus can reverse death. If you want a gospel soundbite, this is pretty good. Jesus has power over death. That is good news, isn't it? Death is the ultimate statistic. One out of one dies. Death is the ultimate enemy. We, we fear it. We avoid talking about it. But Jesus has defeated death. Death is no longer the last word. With Jesus, the last word is resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And the passage we're looking at this morning from verse 45 follows straight on from what we were looking at last week. And it tells us about some of the ways that people respond to this miracle. So verse, verse 45 begins, therefore. In other words, because of what Jesus has done in raising Lazarus from the dead, therefore, many of the Jews who saw what he did believed in him. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus has performed this amazing, irrefutable miracle. It makes sense that people would put their faith in him, would believe in him. But then we're told how the Pharisees respond, and it's a bit unexpected. The Pharisees were told, well, they're told what Jesus has done, and they call a meeting together with the chief priests, and at that meeting, they plot to murder Jesus. That's a bit odd, isn't it? bit strange. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and so the religious leaders decide what we need to do is kill him. And by the end of the passage, they're planning to kill Lazarus as well. Our first point this morning, uh, and the slides are pretty uninteresting, but our first point is that Jesus dies, Jesus is going to die because he can give life. Throughout this section, both last week's passage and today, it's clear that Jesus' ability to give life and his own death are connected. Jesus' ability to give life and his own death are connected. They belong together. So um, let me just take you back to a few verses from last week. Verse 7 of chapter 11. Uh, Jesus says, let's go back to Judea. He's going to where Lazarus has died. He's going to raise Lazarus from death. And the disciples are like, whoa, Rabbi, what are you, what are you thinking? What are you talking about? You know, the last time you were there, the Jews tried to stone you. This is verse 8. Uh, they tried to stone you. What are you thinking? Let's not go back there. And in summary, the next few verses, Jesus says, no, we're going back. And then, verse 16, we're told that Thomas says, well, let's go and die too. In Thomas's mind, Jesus is on a suicide mission if he's going back to Judea. And so he says, let's go too so we can die with Jesus. So can you see, as Jesus goes to raise Lazarus, danger's in the air. There's a very real threat to Jesus' life. His raising of Lazarus and his own death are connected and then in verses 47 to 53, it's clear that the very reason the leaders plot to kill Jesus is because he can raise the dead. So have a look again at verse 47. 
The chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. Now, pause, notice that they don't dispute the miracle. They don't argue that Jesus is a fake. No, it's the, it's the very fact that his miracle is so convincing that they're concerned. So they say, read on in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They don't dispute the miracle. Their concern is that if anyone hears about it, well, they're going to believe in Jesus and that's going to have consequences. The consequences are that the Romans will come and take away their temple and their nation. We need to understand a little bit about the political situation in Israel. At that time, it was very precarious. The Jews were living in the land of Israel, but they were under Roman rule. They had some freedoms, but it was a very fragile situation, a lot of tension. And the leaders are concerned that if there's this miracle worker who can raise the dead, well, that's going to cause a big commotion. That's going to spark a revolution, and that's sure to get them in trouble with the Romans. And they'll lose their freedoms, and they'll lose the temple. And so the leaders are fretting, what are we going to do? And Caiaphas, the high priest, gets up and says, effectively, don't be reluctant about getting rid of Jesus. Don't be reluctant about killing Jesus. If that's what's needed to save the nation, well, that's a good outcome. He says, it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And so we're told, verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. So can you see, it's because Jesus can give life that he's going to get killed. Our second point is that Jesus, is, Jesus dies, Jesus is going to die so that he can give life. It's not just that his ability to give life gets him killed, but Jesus getting killed is how he has the ability to give life. Jesus' death and Lazarus' life are connected. They belong together. Jesus' death and our lives are together, uh, belong together. Jesus can only raise the dead because he himself dies. Now, we need to go back to what uh, Caiaphas says and the comment that John makes following it. So, verse 49, Caiaphas, the high priest, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And then John, the author, tells us, he didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring, bring them together and make them one. Now, Caiaphas is talking about what's needed for political stability. But John says he's speaking prophetically. He's speaking for God without even knowing it. When it says that Jesus would die for the people, 
for the nation, for the scattered children of God. The Greek word there is the word huper, and it means literally on behalf of, or for the sake of, or even in the place of. It points to the idea of substitution, that, that Jesus will die on our behalf, for our sake, and in our place, as our substitutes. Jesus has said the same thing himself back in chapter 10, when he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, on behalf of the sheep. Jesus' death and his ability to give life belong together. Jesus dies so that he can give life, so that we can live. How does that work? Well, we need to understand that in the Bible, death isn't just a biological problem. It's a spiritual problem. Death is part of God's judgment on humanity for our rejection of him. And so for Jesus to have the ability to give life, to save us from death, he has to deal with the judgment, the punishment that our rejection of God deserves. Jesus' death is a sin-bearing death. It's not just that Jesus dies, but that in his death he takes our sin. He bears the judgment that our sin deserves. He atones for our guilt. Last week, we rejoiced in the fact that Jesus can see us safely through death, can give us life beyond the grave. In the passage this morning, we're being taught that he can only do that because he dies on our behalf. Jesus dies so that he can give life. And that leads us to that final question. And I don't know about you, often when I see an outline like that, I think the final thing with the arrow, that's just the kind of concluding remarks. We're going to spend a bit of time here. How do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to the one who can give life to you and those you love? How do you respond to the one who dies in order to give life to you and those you love? How do you respond? At the beginning of chapter 12, we're back in Bethany, Lazarus's hometown, and we're told that a dinner is given in Jesus's honor. That makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, it's only appropriate they throw a party to celebrate and honor Jesus. But then we're told Mary, Lazarus's sister, takes it a step further, or maybe 10 steps further. Verse 3. Mary took about a pint or half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Perfume can be expensive, kind of, if you're a husband, you probably know that. Uh, this, we're told, is pure perfume. This isn't the watered-down variety, and it's nard, an expensive perfume, and it's a pint of the stuff. You know, when you buy perfume, it's normally in really small bottles, like 50 mil, and you only put a couple of drops on. Well, this is a pint of pure 
expensive perfume, and Mary is pouring it out, all of it, over Jesus' feet. Judas does a quick calculation and estimates the perfume is probably worth literally 300 denarii. A denarius was a small silver coin, uh, what you paid uh, a laborer for a, a day's work. So 300 denarii, it's roughly a year's wages for a laborer. Google tells me in Australia that's about $60,000. So Mary is pouring out $60,000 worth of perfume to make Jesus' feet smell good. And then she's wiping his feet with her hair. It's quite intimate, isn't it? If someone did that today, it would raise more than a few eyebrows. But in Jesus' day, where it was considered improper for a woman to even let her hair down, you know, this, what Mary does, is kind of scandalous. It's a very costly, a very public, and a very extreme expression of love and devotion. What Mary does seems extreme, and Judas objects. You know, this perfume should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Now, John tells us that Judas doesn't really care for the poor. He just wanted to get his own hands on the money. But we might have some sympathy with what he says. I mean, Mary's actions do seem over the top, even wasteful, don't they? Think how many poor people could be helped with $60,000. Surely Jesus would prefer the money to be used in that way rather than a five-minute act of worship. What is really striking is how Jesus responds to what Mary does. He doesn't criticize her. He doesn't even say, well, thank you very much, but actually it would have been better to use the money this way. Jesus commends her. Verse 7, he says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. That's a pretty crazy thing to say, isn't it? Jesus is saying, I'm worth more than the poor. Now, there is something unique about what Mary does. We can't pour perfume on Jesus' feet. And the Bible makes it clear that the love we show to the poor, the care we show to the poor, is an expression of our love for God. But for Mary, in that situation, what she does, says Jesus, is absolutely right. It's commendable. We don't know how much Mary understands of what's going to happen, but it may well be that she's reckoning to herself this could be the last opportunity I have to show my love for Jesus. In normal circumstances, blowing 60K in five minutes is probably not the best use of that money. But these are not normal circumstances, and Jesus is not a normal person. See, here's the thing. Mary is the one person in this story who sees clearly, who sees what Jesus is really worth. Mary's actions might seem extreme, but when you remember who Jesus is, the one who has raised her brother from the dead, the one who is going to give his life to save us from death, well, don't her actions begin 
to make sense. And so I think the question for us is, how much do you love Jesus? Maybe someone you love has died, trust in Christ. Kat mentioned in her prayers, Esther Chung, killed in a car accident last week, and it's right that those who know her grieve. But we can also grieve with hope. How much do you love Jesus for his promise to raise your loved one from death? One day we'll face our own death. How much do you love Jesus for his promise to give you life beyond the grave? How much do you love Jesus for his willingness to die on your behalf, in your place, on the cross? What is your response to the one who gives his life so you can live? What do you think would be an appropriate expression of love and worship for such a saviour? And this passage is not an isolated example or call to love Jesus in this extreme all-of-life kind of way. On the next slide, a couple of passages. In Mark 8, Jesus famously says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul puts it like this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That word proper is the Greek word logikain. It's where we get the word logical from. Paul is saying, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that God has done for us in Christ, this is the logical response. This is the worship that makes sense, that you offer your bodies, your whole lives as a sacrifice to God. No one minds respectable religion. Probably some people do. But by and large, in our society, that's okay. It's okay to have safe Christianity, a kind of private hobby Christianity. It's okay to believe that Jesus is God. Just don't go believing he's everyone's God and trying to impose that on other people. It's okay to be serious about Jesus, to be keen on Jesus, but don't get too serious. Don't become fanatical. Don't take it to an extreme. It's okay to give some of your time and your money and your energy to serve Jesus, to serve at a local church. But to give up your life for Jesus, to, to start making sacrifices that affect your lifestyle, uh, affect what kind of holidays you can go on, affect what kind of school your kids can attend, well, that's a bit unnerving. That makes people uncomfortable. And I don't know about you, but I don't like making people uncomfortable. I'm drawn to respectable religion. I'm drawn to a version of following Jesus that makes sense to the people around me. I don't want to be considered extreme or fanatical. But Mary is commended 
for her extreme response to Jesus. And when you think about it, her response is really the only one that makes sense of who Jesus is and what he's done. Mary knew that true worship is never a waste. That it's impossible to love him too much. It's impossible to follow him too closely. That you cannot adore Jesus too intensely. You cannot devote yourself to him too extravagantly. You cannot serve him too generously. In Mark's account of this incident, Jesus says that what Mary has done is a beautiful thing that will never be forgotten. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she's done will be told. And so it has. Imagine being famous for your reckless love for Jesus. When Corinne and I were backpacking in New Zealand, we stayed with some students in Christchurch. One of the girls was a, a Christian. She had a banner on the wall of her room that said, I want to do something beautiful for Jesus. It's a great desire to have. Wouldn't it be great if at the end of your life you were remembered for this? If people remembered you for your love for Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We praise you that you are the one who can give life. We praise you that that cost you your life. We praise you that you're the one who died for us on our behalf, in our place on the cross. We praise you for the promise that we have in you of life beyond the grave, a life that will never die. And we pray that you'd help us, you'd move us, you'd sink this gospel truth so deeply into us that we would respond rightly. We'd get it. We'd see you for who you are. We'd see how worthy you are. And we'd respond with lives of wholehearted worship. We pray it for your glory's sake. Amen.